High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we are continuing our ongoing series, Star Wars. Previously in this series, we've talked about actresses who sold war bonds, who volunteered tirelessly at the Hollywood canteen, who tried to do their part by inventing high-tech weapons, and who sacrificed their own health and sanity to the war effort. But the subject of today's episode got closer to the actual fighting and more involved in backstage warcraft than perhaps any other woman associated with Hollywood during World War II. Today, we're going to talk about Marlena Dietrich. You go to my head and you linger like a haunting refrain And I find you spinning round in my brain Like the bubbles in a glass of champagne How did Marlena Dietrich, the famously libertine German actress-slash-singer who virtually invented the modern idea of glamorous androgyny, end up so deeply embedded within Allied forces that General Patton himself gave her both a pep talk and a pistol? To understand that, we have to go back 
to Dietrich's childhood during World War I and trace our way through her long marriage and many, many affairs, her transformative collaboration with Joseph von Sternberg, her fantasies of espionage on behalf of the Allies, and her actual efforts as a de facto intelligence agent and propagandist. And then we have to talk about what happened immediately following the war, when Marlena found herself broke and in shock, and Billy Wilder convinced her to play a part that, on its surface, appeared to embody everything she had just stood and fought against. Join us, won't you, for the story of the war times of Marlena Dietrich. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? I think I would use my extra hour to sleep an hour later, or maybe spend more time at the gym. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. I recently started seeing a new therapist with the explicit goal of trying to figure out what I want in the short term and the long term. I've been in fight-or-flight mode for so long that I've kind of lost track of any goals or ambition that I once had. A therapist can be there for you in times of crisis, even if you have, like me, rather diffuse needs. Either way, a therapist can help you understand the way that you feel and offer strategies for moving forward. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, so you don't have to sit in traffic to get to your appointment. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, Dot com slash YMRT. Born Marie Magdalena Dietrich in 1901, Dietrich started calling herself Marlena at the age of 11. Later, her memories of childhood would be indivisible from memories of the First World War. The men in her family were all soldiers, including her father, who was fatally injured on the Russian front. Both her family and her country lost a full generation of men in the Great War. So until the 1920s, Marlena thought of Germany as a country full of women. She was taught English by a governess and then decamped for boarding school, where little Marlena learned to love Kant and Rilke. Marlena spent her teen years as a violin prodigy, but a chronic finger injury forced her to give up playing. After that, she decided to become an actress. She began studying with the great theater director Max Reinhardt, taking small parts in plays and eventually German films. On an audition for an extra role, she met Rudy Siebler, who would become her one and only husband and father her only child, Maria. Rudy and Marlena were married for 53 years, from the time she was 22 until he died in 1976. 
And though they often weren't living together, and in fact, he took on a second female companion who acted as a wife in Marlena's absence, Marlena would refer to Rudy as her soulmate until the end of her own days. It was in a play in which Marlena had just a single line that she was spotted by Joseph von Sternberg, the Austrian-born filmmaker who had become a self-made virtuoso in Hollywood. His birth name was Jonas Sternberg. He had mutated it into Joseph and added the von partially in a tribute to Eric von Stroheim and partially in an attempt to intimidate the American movie world with faux aristocratic credentials. His family immigrated to New York when he was a teenager, and he drifted into the film business basically by accident, only to exhibit a remarkable talent for all facets of filmmaking. By the late 1920s, Sternberg had directed several highly sophisticated late silent era classics, including Docks of New York, Underworld, Thunderbolt, and The Last Command, for which Emil Jannings won the first Academy Award for Best Actor. In 1929, Sternberg was invited to Berlin to make a film, and he brought Jannings with him. That film, shot simultaneously in German and English, would be The Blue Angel, and Jannings would play a middle-aged professor who becomes sexually obsessed with a trashy cabaret girl and throws his life away in the process. From the moment he saw her speak her single line in that throwaway play, Joseph von Sternberg was convinced that Marlena Dietrich was his trashy cabaret girl. He also became determined to remake this slightly pudgy German mother into the most glamorous of Hollywood stars. He succeeded, and they made a total of seven films together, most of them arguably masterpieces. Marlena Dietrich was 29 when she first arrived in Hollywood. Sternberg had been trying to lure her over the ocean from the moment they started filming The Blue Angel. But she had two things holding her back. One was her fear of failure. She was secretly terrified that she wasn't good enough to star in a Hollywood film. The other reason was her daughter. She told Rudy she'd rather wait until Maria was a little bit older. Rudy said, when she is a little bit older, you'll also be a little bit older. In other words, it was now or never. Marlena's first Hollywood film was Morocco, and in it she wore a tuxedo, kissed a woman, and had movie history's sexiest false start-laden passive-aggressive romance with Gary Cooper, thus inaugurating the sexual ambiguity that would become her trademark. The movie was a huge hit, and she was nominated for a Best Actress Oscar. She followed it up with Dishonored, in which she played a hooker-turned-Austrian spy who, when facing a firing squad, takes a moment to fix her lipstick. This was the other key element to the Dietrich persona, an almost absurd devotion to glamour, at all times, at all costs. She continued making films with Sternberg, Shanghai Express, Blonde Venus. The latter pushed Marlena's sexual outlaw persona way beyond the point of camp, having her perform a kind of striptease cabaret act in a gorilla costume. The movie was a financial failure, and after its release in 1932, Sternberg announced he was quitting Hollywood and going back to Berlin, which meant working for a film commission now under the control of Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels. Now Paramount, despite Marlena's protests, was free to cast her in films made by other directors. 
But Sternberg had been expecting the German film industry to greet him as a conquering hero, when in fact, they didn't even want him. In 1933, Jewish filmmakers were banned from working in Germany. And though Sternberg had already been trying to hide his Semitic ethnicity for years, his artistry, too, had no place in the newly nationalized German film industry. So by 1934, he was back in Hollywood, directing Dietrich as Catherine the Great in Sternberg's visual masterpiece, The Scarlet Empress. This was another box office failure, and an expensive one. Sternberg and Dietrich followed it up with another movie that flopped, The Devil is a Woman. It was also the film that Dietrich would later call her favorite of all of her films. Marlena was constantly telling everyone that Sternberg was fully responsible for her creation as a movie star. There's even a chapter in her autobiography titled, You Are Svengali, I Am Trilby. This was a good way to perpetuate both of their legends at once, but it wasn't entirely true. Sternberg did coach and shape Dietrich an awful lot, even inviting her to sit in the editing room with him to watch as he put her performances together, which was incredibly unusual at the time, if only because at the time, most directors didn't edit their own films. But Marlena also had an innate understanding of how to present herself to a camera, and particularly how she should be made up and lit. She knew exactly how the right lighting had the ability to sculpt her face into an object of mystery, and she was a genius at positioning herself to soak that light up. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. Dietrich would have been the first to claim that her off-screen life had nothing to do with her on-screen persona. But in both realms, she was a noted sexual adventuress. Her husband Rudy, she said, Never seemed to mind anything I did. In other words, their sex life ended after the conception of their child, and they allowed one another to have affairs. 
Rudy essentially took on another wife, a Russian actress named Tamara, who lived with him when he wasn't living with Marlena. But Marlena was not looking for a second husband. Rather, she had passionate affairs with almost every man she met, and some women she met, sometimes simultaneously. At one party, when her host made an offhanded comment about how it was such a pity that former silent heartthrob John Gilbert was drinking himself to death, Marlena stood up and said, I will save him. And then she left the party and went straight to Gilbert's house and banged on his door. She did get him to quit drinking, and they became incredibly close over the course of their romance, which lasted until Gilbert died of a heart attack in 1936. Marlena was still in mourning when she attended another dinner party, at which she met Douglas Fairbanks Jr. At the end of that night, Marlena asked Fairbanks to give her a ride home, and when they got to her home, she invited him in. When they got upstairs, he commented that it was so nice of her to invite him in for a drink. She said, A drink isn't what I had in mind. Fairbanks reported that at first, Marlena kept a photo of Gilbert by her bed, surrounded by votive candles. After a while, Fairbanks stopped feeling Gilbert's eyes on him when he was in Marlena's bed, and then a while after that, he realized that the photo and the candles were gone. And a while after that, one night Marlena told Fairbanks that they would be meeting another couple at a restaurant for dinner. And when they got to the restaurant, the other couple stood up, and Marlena made introductions. I'd like you to meet Rudy, my husband, and this is Tommy, his friend who lives with him. Later, Fairbanks shared with Marlena a hot bit of gossip. Edward, the King of England, whom Fairbanks and Dietrich had met together, was going to abdicate his throne in order to marry the divorced American Wallace Simpson. Convinced this would be a terrible, terrible mistake, Marlena became determined to stop it from happening by any means necessary, even if it meant that she'd have to seduce Edward in order to convince him that Wallace Simpson was not the only fish in the sea. When Fairbanks was like, um, I'm like your boyfriend and I'm not so sure I'm cool with you like seducing the King of England, Marlena said, Darling, don't be so old-fashioned. We're doing it for England, which we both love. Some sacrifices will need to be made. There's no evidence that Marlena actually put this plan into motion, and, well, that's why the King's speech happened. As the decade wore on and the Nazis started consolidating power, getting serious about the Aryan agenda and putting into motion Hitler's plans for world domination, Marlena was fervently pursued by emissaries from the German Film Commission, who were eager to have their native daughter, who had become such a big star abroad, return home and become the glamorous figurehead of their propaganda factory. This was something Marlena had no intention of doing. She hated the Nazis. Long before most Americans had any idea of the horrors Hitler had in store, Marlena Dietrich sensed that her birthland was in bad, bad hands. But she couldn't just tell them to go fuck themselves. Not, at least, until she secured U.S. citizenship. So she graciously received visits from Nazi bigwigs and old German royals while vacationing in Paris, and she convinced them all that she would definitely come back to Berlin to make movies. Soon. And then Marlena came up with an even grander plot than Operation Screw King Edward, one with even greater historical international implications. 
The Nazis were so obsessed with the idea of getting Dietrich on their side that she figured they'd be willing to do almost anything to make it happen. This was her plan. She would tell Goebbels that she was ready to leave Hollywood for Berlin, but that she needed a private audience with Hitler in order to seal the deal. At this tete-a-tete, Dietrich would convince Adolf Hitler that she was in love with him. And then he would take her to bed, and then, when his defenses were down, she would kill him. The only problem was, how would she get a weapon into the bedroom? She couldn't hide it in her purse or her clothes. He would probably have guards that would search her. And anyway, in order to get the Fuhrer right where she wanted him, she would have to be completely naked. She related this plan to Douglas Fairbanks Jr. because he read spy novels, and maybe he could come up with something. Perhaps he could help her find someone who could create a deadly file or poison vial disguised as a hairpin. Fairbanks was still her boyfriend, and as entranced by Marlena as he was, he wasn't sure he was all that into this recurring Matahari act. He said to her, even if she was prepared to be imprisoned and executed in order to save millions from Hitler, was she prepared for what would happen to her family if she were to go through with this? What about her mother, who had refused to leave Germany when she could and who was now stuck there? Needless to say, Dietrich didn't go through with this plot either. In 1939, Marlena was sworn in as a U.S. citizen, which meant to Nazi Germans, she was a traitor. The previous year, her string of artistically interesting flops had caught up with her. She was named alongside Katherine Hepburn, Joan Crawford, and others as box office poison. But Marlena bounced right back, starring opposite Jimmy Stewart in the Western, Destry Rides Again. On set, Dietrich and Stewart began an affair, and Marlena soon discovered she was pregnant. When she told Jimmy, he said, Geez, what are you going to do? Marlena took notice of the fact that Stewart had said, you, not we. She wanted the baby, and she was 38, so... But the pregnancy turned out to be a false alarm. And maybe a blessed one, given that it cleared away Marlena's romantic blinders when it came to Jimmy Stewart. The end of the affair freed Marlena up for an entanglement with Joseph Kennedy, who on the brink of World War II was the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain. With Joe Kennedy, Marlena tried her own version of diplomacy. She tried to convince him that the U.S. could not remain isolated, that Hitler would sooner or later invade America if America didn't stop Hitler in his tracks. But Kennedy told her he didn't want to send American boys to die in Europe. And of course, Marlena was wrong. Hitler didn't invade America. In the early 1940s, Dietrich made a number of films with John Wayne, and the two had what Marlena would call a small affair. It apparently wasn't so small to John Wayne, but we'll discuss that in a future episode. Suffice it to say, Marlena had other things on her mind. Once the U.S. joined the war after Pearl Harbor, Marlena crossed the country on war bond tours, she worked double time at the Hollywood Canteen, and she filled in for Rita Hayworth in Orson Welles' Magic Act, allowing herself to be sawed in half every night and again on camera for a film called Follow the Boys, which was essentially Universal's answer to the Hollywood Canteen movie. 
But now in her 40s, she was starting to have trouble getting movie work, and she was happy to be useful. After all, most Germans in America at this time were wanted rather than desired. Both her husband and her sometime lover, author Eric Maria Remarque, were considered enemy aliens in America during the war and subjected to curfews and banned from working. But nothing she could do in America was enough to keep the fierce Nazi hater Marlena satisfied that she was doing all she could. I lived through one terrible war, Dietrich would say later. I knew that this one was far worse. I couldn't do much, but I had to do something. Little did she know that for the past two years, in an effort to prove that she was a German spy, the FBI had been tracking her every move, reading her mail and notating her bedroom habits, including her alleged seduction of bisexual actress Kay Francis. They weren't able to prove anything, except for the fact that Marlena was, to quote her FBI file, promiscuous, albeit in a rather cool and glamorous manner. The FBI apparently gave up on outing Marlena as a bad actor when she gave up trying to act and gave herself over to the Allies. She sold most of her valuables, went to New York, and offered herself to the USO. They built a show around her, which would tour the world. She went to Casablanca, then Italy, where she was hospitalized with pneumonia and where the new wonder drug penicillin may have saved her life. She drank Calvados to stay warm at night, even though it reliably made her vomit. Marlena and everyone she was traveling with got crabs. They slept with wet towels on their faces at night to ward off rats. She performed four shows a day on makeshift stages, sometimes a couple of overturned crates, and always amidst enemy fire. It'll do the soldiers good to know that you're at the front, General Patton told her, handing her a revolver for self-protection. They'll tell themselves the situation can't be so bad if Marlena Dietrich's there. But it was pretty bad. At the front with U.S. troops in Italy and in France, she witnessed casualties which would haunt her for decades. She knew no one back in America was seeing how bad the fighting really was, Of course, there were a lot of things happening that no one in America would truly understand until it was too late. As the highest-profile native German speaker on their side, the U.S. government was happy to make the most of Marlena's desire to help. They brought her into POW camps and had her talk to German prisoners of war, many of whom had only been half-loyal to the Nazis to begin with, and were happy to divulge secrets to a beautiful movie star speaking to them in their native tongue. Marlena dutifully passed along to Army intelligence any info the POWs gave her that could potentially help end the war sooner. Then, Marlena was recruited by the Office of Strategic Services, an organization which was later folded into the CIA, to be part of what they were calling MUSAC, an operation designed to foment dissent amongst Nazi and fascist soldiers through black radio broadcasts. Essentially, Western propaganda geared toward counteracting German propaganda to encourage soldiers and civilians to start questioning the Axis dogma and way of doing things. Dietrich recorded a number of songs in German for the Muzak project, including Lily Marlene, which became such a hit amongst German soldiers that the Nazis tried to ban it from national radio, but couldn't because the outcry from the troops was so massive. Vor der Kaserne, vor dem großen Tor, 
steht eine Laterne und steht sie noch davor. Dort wollen wir uns wiedersehen, bei der Laterne wollen wir stehen, wie einst Lily Marlene, wie einst As the war spun out of the Nazis' control, it was announced that any German who deserted the national cause and or was thought to be in cahoots with the Allies would be declared to be an enemy of the state. And if captured, they and their families would be sentenced to death. Marlene Dietrich might have been the most visible German defector in the world. The day the U.S. soldiers marched into Paris, Marlene was photographed in front of the Hermes store, wearing an American officer's uniform made especially for her, signing autographs with lipstick. When the Allied troops liberated Berlin, Marlene went with them. She went looking for her mother, with whom she had been afraid to communicate during the war, in case the Nazis decided to punish her mom for Marlene's quote-unquote crimes. Marlene had no idea if her mother was dead or alive. To Marlene's great relief, she soon found that her mother had survived the war. After their reunion, when it was time for Marlene and the squad she was with to move on, her mother walked her to the jeep, slammed the door shut, and said, "'Now for a change,' Think of yourself for once. That was the last time Marlena saw her mother. She died shortly after. Through her government connections, Marlena was able to get a coffin in which to bury her mother amidst a wood shortage. Marlena would think of that funeral as her own final farewell to her homeland. This episode is brought to you by Mubi a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. It took Marlena about a year to adjust to post-war life. She felt adrift in shock as to how little most Americans, let alone Hollywood folk, really understood about what had gone on over there. She was out of sync with the culture. As the baby boom began to boom, she was in the midst of middle age. As post-war prosperity swept the nation and turned Americans into champion consumers, Marlena's accountant warned her not to write any checks because she was dead broke. Orson Welles invited Marlena to live in his house, and they collaborated on radio shows together for a while. By the time she was ready to get back to movie work in 1946, she was 45 years old. And despite her dedicated service during the war, she hadn't had a real hit movie since the late 1930s. Almost three years had passed since she had made any film at all. 
And then an offer came from her old friend, Billy Wilder. Like Dietrich, Wilder had worked in German films in the 1920s before expatriating to the U.S., and Wilder and Dietrich were amongst a very small group of Hollywood émigrés who visited Germany immediately after the war. Dietrich, still performing her never-ending USO tour, had the aforementioned final reunion with her mother. Wilder was sent to Germany in August 1945 under military auspices to consult on the rebuilding of the German film industry. A key aspect of this program was punitive education. According to Wilder, famished Berlin citizens were required to attend screenings of documentaries about Nazi atrocities before they could obtain a ration card. Wilder was tasked with editing one of these documentaries, compiled of footage shot by the Allies during the liberation of concentration camps. Wilder did this knowing his mother and grandmother were missing and likely had been detained in one of the camps. Only later was he given confirmation that both had died in Auschwitz. Another part of Wilder's job was to create a report analyzing the state of available production facilities and the quality of filmmaking talent left in Germany. In Wilder's report, he declared that, quote, no production of German pictures is possible in the near future, which might have been true psychologically, but wasn't true technically, given that there were filmmaking facilities in the country that had survived the war. But Wilder seemed intent on using this report to voice his opposition to another U.S. initiative, the idea that generic Hollywood films should be shown to Germans in Berlin as a kind of re-education. Wilder thought Hollywood films could have a role in the cultural and psychic rebuilding of Germany, but not generic Hollywood films. Wilder wrote a memo recommending that someone, instead, should make a movie with all of the pleasures of Hollywood's generic product— such as a love story, with big stars such as Rita Hayworth or Gary Cooper, but with strategic elements of ideology baked into the entertainment. In other words, American propaganda costumed as diversion. Wilder then offered his services as the propagandist, pitching a film which strongly resembled what would become a foreign affair. The movie documents a post-war Berlin in which Americans are conquering heroes, making the most of their occupation, living high off the black market, and regularly using their power to fix conditions for themselves and their friends, with little to no regard for the long-term future of either the U.S. or Germany. Wilder's original outline for the film seems more in line with the sentiment of his memo. Inspired by a woman he had met in Berlin immediately after the war, it had the female lead stating that she was waiting for her gas to be turned on so that she could commit suicide, only to slowly come around to a hopeful perspective thanks to her encounters with the Americans. In the finished film, made two years after Wilder's original proposal and set in early 1946, Marlena plays Erika, a German cabaret singer who, it's eventually revealed, was previously a woman well-kept by a high-ranking Nazi. With her former lover-slash-protector dead, post-war, Erika finds it expedient to switch allegiances, and she's thus traded her old sugar daddy for a handsome American occupier, Captain John Pringle. Erica feels no guilt over having done what she had to do. Pringle is initially blissfully ignorant. He's only forced to question her past and his own decadence and corruption under the influence of a woman who is sketched as in every way Erica's opposite, the prim, humorless American congresswoman played by Jean Arthur. 
Wilder liked the idea of casting Dietrich as Erica because of the character's echoes to her Lola Lola from The Blue Angel. And the director had even hired Frederick Hollander, the songwriter from The Blue Angel, to write songs for a foreign affair with Marlena in mind. Wilder imagined Erica as an older, hardened, more shrewd version of Lola Lola. He figured a young cabaret girl from the Weimar era could have conceivably stuck around for nearly 20 years, through the Nazi era and the war, by learning how to please each successive master. That point is underscored in the film by the way Dietrich's Erica greets her American boyfriend. I have a new Führer now. I have you. Hire Johnny. You hire me once more, sweetheart, and I'll knock your teeth in. Though eager to work with Wilder, Marlena at first turned the part of Erica down. She said, Billy, my darling, I just cannot play a woman who was either a Nazi or who was such a political opportunist that she didn't care who she slept with as long as she got nylons. Wilder used reverse psychology to get her to do it. He showed her the screen test of another actress and waited patiently as Marlena started picking apart her performance. Finally, Wilder said, You see, Marlena, only you can play this part. And it was clear he was right. Before filming of A Foreign Affair began on the Paramount lot in late 1947, Wilder returned to Berlin to shoot documentary footage of the still-in-ruined city. The movie stars were then spliced in and out of the footage of Real Rebel. Here's an excerpt from the first song Dietrich sings in the film called Black Market. You like my first edition? It's yours. (laughs) That's how I am. The simple definition. You take art, I'll take spam. I'll give you for your ration my passion and maybe an inkling, a twinkling of real sympathy. I'm selling out, take all I've got. Ambitions, convictions, the works. Why not? The tone of the song never gets more upbeat than this, and yet the cabaret full of American men listening to it are totally wrapped, and once it's over, they rush the stage to show their gratitude, literally tossing Marlena up in the air in jubilation. Only Marlena Dietrich can so effortlessly sell the idea that pleasure and sadness, glamour and depravity can all exist all at once. A Foreign Affair is an often funny, biting movie, but given Marlena's experiences as a German who embraced her adopted homeland of America during the war, only to emerge penniless and just about too old to reclaim her past place in Hollywood as a sex goddess, it's also pretty poignant. Where her past films, particularly the movies she made with Sternberg, often imply that the Dietrich character was a woman with a shady past, if only to offer up the possibility of the quasi-prostitute's redemption through true love. In A Foreign Affair, the fact that her past includes Nazi collaboration through quasi-prostitution makes Marlena's Erica, in some sense, irredeemable. Although the movie is too smart to suggest that any character, even the probable Nazi, is all good or all bad. 
Still, Erica is punished for her war crimes at the end of the film, and this seems like more than anything a way of clearing her out of the way so that the young, less ambiguous Americans can have their time in the spotlight. In a sense, this pushing to the margins was happening off-screen to Marlena, too. But there was a second act in her future and would come on the stage with the help of an unlikely mentor. She would also make more films, including a couple drawing on her memories of the war, as well as the role she played in the collective imagination about Germany. But all of that is a tale for another day. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth. That's me. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. And follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. At our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com, you'll find past episodes and more information about the podcast and every individual episode, as well as a forum where you can suggest ideas for future episodes, make comments, and start conversations with your fellow listeners. That's at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Once to buy some illusion Slightly used Second hand They were lovely illusions Reaching high Built on sand They had a that soft paradise A spell you can't explain for in this crazy paradise You are in love with pain You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.